Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alamein, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, you can keep up with us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are wherever you get yours at. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Also at Radio Islam USA. I'll say it again, at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks. Um, Welcome to another edition. It's uh, good to be with you. And I have joining me in studio, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Baik. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Uh, we're going to kind of run through uh, a lot of stuff that's in the news cycle uh, that's kind of caught our eye. We said we, we had to bring this stuff to you uh, and have this conversation. And before we get to it, we always love your feedback. So if you want to drop us a line, you can tweet us at Radio Islam USA, as I mentioned earlier. And also you can email us at producer at radioislam.com. So I think that's good enough. So some of the names that you are going to hear in today's conversation, we are going to be talking about Jussie Smollett, Donald Trump, Christopher Paul Hassan, and R. Kelly. We're going to start with a comparison between Jesse Smollett and the Coast Guard Lieutenant Christopher Christopher Paul Hassan. And just a really interesting uh, difference in the coverage that, uh, not just coverage, but the response that has been given by our president, Donald J. Trump. So I want to let you uh, kick off on this one, Ibrahim. Well, I guess we should maybe summarize what happened. Yeah. With the whole Jesse Smollett thing first, since we're starting with that. Um, he claimed he was attacked. Now, I was already kind of skeptical or, or just cautious in the beginning when he said, when he described the attack, mm-hmm. when he said it was MAGA, well, the attacker supposedly said it was MAGA, this is MAGA country. Right. Um, which where we're sitting from is not too far from there, as in River North, right? Yeah. And we know River North is kind of really the furthest thing possible from very liberal <laughs> Maga country. <laughs> yes, very much a uh, Hillary type of crowd. Yeah. Right. Older, uh, older wealthy liberals mm-hmm. are the only people who live there. There's the Trump Tower itself, which is like a big hotel and maybe some offices in there. The Trump Tower um, hates itself, though. Yeah. <laughs> It looks very out of place. Yeah. Um, but the, as far as the people who live there, is is really the antithesis of so-called MAGA country. Right. So when I heard that, I was already kind of wondering, well, how did that happen? But but we all reserved our uh, judgments until more stuff came out. And now it seems to be the case, at least according to Chicago police, that Jesse Smollett orchestrated this attack against himself by hiring uh, two young men who he knew from work or from I think one was a personal trainer or something like that mm-hmm. uh, two young men of Nigerian descent I think um, big strong guys one was a personal trainer mm-hmm. um, and so people are obviously outraged at Jesse Smollett for a variety of reasons people on the right are outraged because obviously it was uh, uh, seems to be an orchestrated attack mm-hmm. and he lied against MAGA and all that and other people are also rightfully outraged because um, it it damages the credibility 
of people who really have been attacked or may be attacked in the future in, in some kind of a, a hate crime incident. We know in Illinois, we already have kind of a hard time getting hate crimes to be labeled as hate crimes. Yeah. There was legislation that, that certain of our uh, people that we know sponsored and so on. Um, so it's, it's hard enough already to call a hate crime a hate crime. Right. But now something like this happens. Um, I think uh, Superintendent, what's his name, Eddie Johnson? Yeah. He seemed to be insinuating, he seemed to be implying that, I'm, I'm not sure if he said this explicitly, but he seemed to be implying that even himself as an African-American man mm -hmm. is uh, personally kind of offended and hurt that Jesse Small will use his platform to orchestrate such a thing. Yeah. And, and the thing, what he's looking for, he invited him, right? He kind of implored him to take responsibility, number one. Take responsibility, apologize, and whatever else happens, right? Because he's also facing the potential of uh, federal um, federal charges mm -hmm. because he used the mail to have a um, uh, to have a hate you know a hateful letter um, yeah. you know sent to his workplace so I got to say this real quick one person I spoke to uh, not going to say his name but he said I was I was suspicious from the very beginning. He says, because what black man is going to leave a noose on his neck for 40 minutes until the police get there? Right. Right. He's like, you know, come on now. He said, that just didn't make any sense to me from the very beginning. Right. Um, but 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 do go on. Right. Because we're looking at um, not just the fact that he he staged it. Uh, we're looking at the, the 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 impact on Chicago's reputation. Uh and I'm not going to, you know, I don't think anybody in Chicago thinks that racism does not exist in Chicago, mm -hmm. right? But because it's a high-profile individual, uh, it's going to be placed under a microscope. Um, but, but go on, go on. Well, um, since then, what's happened since then? Okay, so since then, um, you know, he was booked. You know the the two brothers they broke after what they he I think uh, Superintendent he, Johnson he still said, continues to the forty seventh hour yeah he still continues to deny that he uh, fabricated or you know yeah. orchestrated the attack but I saw this morning uh, it was on the news they showed a check written out to one of the brothers mm -hmm. from Jesse Smollett I mean kind of game over well i shouldn't say that right because it's, i mean there could be context for anything but right. it doesn't look good it's it's starting to seem as if the public really has made up their mind yeah. that um he really did orchestrate this thing mm -hmm. of course the you know we don't we're not the final word right right, right. there's still going to be a trial probably but um it seems like the public has, has pretty much made up their mind yeah so this is where we stand this uh jesse smollett of empire um he is going to have to deal with these charges. Court of public opinion is one thing. Seeing how this is adjudicated is going to be another. Mm -hmm. But let's get to the other side of this, right? So we painted the picture of the Jesse Smollett right. so case. While this is all going on, right. there's something actually much more serious that's going on. Yeah, yeah. And this is where Christopher Paul Hassan comes in.
right? This is a lieutenant in the Coast Guard, United States Coast Guard, one of our uh, branches of our military. And he was arrested, as you may or may not know, on gun and drug charges, right? That he intended uh, to murder innocent civilians on a scale rarely seen in this country, right? This is the uh, official report. So this is um, according to court documents that were filed, <clears throat> excuse me, last week. Now, he's been stockpiling weapons since 2017. This is according to the government. And he created a list of targets, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, allegedly expressing extremist views for years. So he has been labeled as a, uh, as a white supremacist. Uh, and his views as uh, have been indicated to be pro-Russian, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi. And he has viewed literature um, which espouses those uh, ideologies uh, thousands and thousands of times. So uh, it also says that he once wrote, I am dreaming of a way to kill almost every last person on earth. I mean, that's, you know, that is certainly the, uh, uh, a sign of an antisocial individual, if you want to put it lightly. Uh, the, the individual has some, has, has some concerns. He has some problems, right? But knowing this, right, knowing that this is out in the, uh, in the, uh, in the news cycle, and it didn't stay very long, right? Did not stay front page uh, very long. This is a, uh, a white male lieutenant, once again. Here's a question. Here's a question. Give myself a drum roll here. Who did President Donald Trump speak out against? Was it Jesse Smollett, the Empire actor, who was trying to stage a uh, stage an attack? paint himself as a victim so that he could possibly use that to bargain for a bigger salary, um, maybe some job security or more notoriety with the uh, LGBTQ community throughout the uh, U.S. or whatever? Or was it the commissioned officer in the United States Coast Guard who was looking to attack elected leaders, journalists, a lot of folks who were already on the radar of our current president. Who did he come out against? Well, couldn't he have condemned both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theoretically? Yeah, sure he could. Right, but, 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 but which, you, which is which do you pick if you if you gotta if you have to give you a voice to guess? One? If I have to guess what he did based yeah. on um, previous uh, experience. Looking at what the president has said, um, he would probably get on Twitter and start trashing uh, Jesse Smollett. Yeah, because yeah. Jesse Smollett mentioned MAGA, you know, in the in the story that he came up with. Right, and maybe it was okay. So I'm actually putting some of this stuff together right now as as, as, as we're talking. This just made mm -hmm. kind of just register with me. Um, president Trump's remarks that he has done more for African Americans than any president in the history of the United States. And maybe he barred Lincoln, <laughs> right? Maybe, but that was a statement that he has recently made. And I don't know if it was in relation to uh, the whole MAGA um, country statement mm -hmm. from uh, Jesse Smollett or not, but I think that's, that, that's a pretty interesting statement for him to make. Uh, Wait, when did he say that? I think it was, it was this. I think this was recently. Oh. Um, 
Okay, so it is actually it was not related to Jesse Smollett. It was uh, he made he made comments like that um, in response to Spike Lee's acceptance speech last night. He won Oscar for best adapted screenplay for um, The Klansman, and he got up and he said something to the fact that you know let's choose love over hate, let's mobilize in the next election, and and something else, and Trump tweets be nice if spike lee could read his notes or better yet not have to use notes at all when doing his racist hit on your president who has done more for african-americans in parentheses criminal justice reform lowest unemployment numbers in history tax cuts etc in parentheses uh than almost any other press don't know what he's talking about i think uh, yeah he has kind of a yeah Delusion, delusional perception of, of himself and what he's actually achieved for the African-American community or, or anyone else. Mm. Um, it's a tough sell, to say the least. Yeah, let's, we let's talked before take about how take we, we talked before about how the, um, there's a claim of the economic growth and job growth right. is not a result of the Trump administration's policies, but was actually a trend that is continuing because of the economic uh, inertia yeah pretty much yeah so anyway so we, we kind of you know wandered off a little bit but uh trump has taken the time to attack uh smollett mm-hmm. and when asked about this coast guard officer uh specifically about the fact that the people that he wanted to attack were also, uh, we'll say enemies or folks, detractors of uh, of the president. And he was asked, do you feel a sense of responsibility maybe to tone down things? Uh, And he says, no, I I think I'm very civil. I'm very nice. And then he goes on to say, well, excuse me, he says, well, what do you think about, what do you think about this? You know, about the fact that this is happening. He goes, I think it's very sad. It's very sad. That's like the under understatement of the year very sad yeah thank god this attack didn't actually materialize um it's worth noting some of the the court documents the people that are mentioned in the court documents Mm -hmm. a lot of prominent uh democratic figures um pelosi charles schumer chuck schumer Mm -hmm. elizabeth warren kristen gilbrand cory booker kamala harris as well as uh, AOC, Maxine Waters, mm. and Ilhan. Really? That. So. so that, that's not sad. That's it's, there's another word that that we should be using instead of sad. Um, very deliberate, very calculated. And, and how about treasonous? Yeah, I think you can go there. Right. How yeah, about treasonous? Right, because you you've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, to defend it, and to defend the citizens of the United States of America. But you're, you've, you've written down a list of folks that are not only, not just private citizens, but people that have been elected to serve the citizens of, 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 of our country. That ain't sad, mm-hmm. right? And the president, <laughs> he, he, knows, he knows a few four-letter words. Four and five letter words, right? 
this is this is disturbing. The president's reaction, I mean, is disturbing because once again he was thrown a softball, as we say politically, right? All you have to do is just come out and clearly say that um, this was so wrong and it was so evil, and we're glad we caught the guy and so on. Mm-hmm. But instead, he pulls another like a Charlottesville moment yeah. where he's kind of like, well, yeah, it was bad, but, uh, you know, not not a clear and and uh, forceful condemnation. Yeah. Could have been, you know, much more forceful and much more uh, powerful, much more unequivocal, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just saying, yeah, well, it's sad that that's happening. This makes me... Uh, I've got to go back to, there was an article in the Military Times, and it stated that one in four, I'll say it again, one in four troops sees white nationalism in the ranks. Hmm. And this also goes back to, there were studies done um, within our police forces, FBI and, and so on, from federal down to state and municipal, stating that white supremacist organizations KKK and neo-Nazis and all these other different groups um, that they were embedding themselves in local state and federal law enforcement at rates that would probably shock people but when you hear about this right here just in terms of the military one in four this is the conversation that's not being had yeah even as I'm reading uh about this incident about how they about the weapons that he had and so on it's so easy to forget that this is actually a government employee who was charged with protecting our borders you yeah. know um that it's kind of surreal to add that back into the picture and be like oh wow this mm. is the person who was supposed to be protecting us you know yeah it's very scary yeah and and i think like on, on his face if you look at the story it's disturbing just in, in that regard this is somebody that we trust, right? Mm-hmm. But digging deeper and looking at um, what are the implications? What, what's the what's at the root of this? And if we say that, as they as they describe him as a white nationalist, mm-hmm. that this is probably the most pervasive uh, and destructive reality that we're dealing with. Well, that is present, but we don't deal with. It. We don't call it out. We don't speak about it with uh, the intentional veracity that it actually deserves. Because how can you have one in four of our uh, enlisted soldiers, right, whether they're uh, non-commissioned officers or officers, saying that this that they've seen this, right, mm-hmm. in the ranks there. So if they see it there, then we know it's also, we know it's in the ranks in our uh, police departments. As a matter of fact, just, just look through the South um, and see how many acts of violence were perpetrated with the consent or by, you know, I'm talking Jim Crow, Jim Crow South. Um, you even got to go to the South. But this is a problem that's not being talked about. But had this person been a Muslim, had this person been, I don't, I don't even have to exchange any other variables, but we know, had this person been a Muslim, then this would have been a, a conversation about the danger of Islam, mm-hmm. right? It would have been a, a conversation about Islam being inherently in opposition to the freedoms of the United States, and we can't. We need to put um, 
systems in place or put laws or policies in place to keep Muslims from being in the military on particular uh, in certain positions. And it certainly wouldn't have left the news cycle so soon either. Not after two or three days, yeah. right? So, Radio Islam family, this is, this is the homework, right? Not just looking at the story, but looking at what's behind the story. White supremacy as an ideology that's acted on by people in positions of power, especially those who have the, um, have the responsibility of protecting us, all of us, not some of us, but all of us. That is something that, you know, we need to address. We need to be, we need to be aware of this. And it should, it should be troubling to us. And it's, and it's way more than just sad. But like uh, my brother Ibrahim mentioned, going back to Charlottesville, when, he was, when pr the president was given that softball question, and he absolutely, he just, you know, he, he bombed whipped. it. Yeah, totally, yeah, totally whipped it. I mean, just absolutely missed it and wound up on his behind. Uh, once again, we're in the same position. So it's going to be up to us. It's going to be up to us to, to call those things out because it's something that's not going away. And especially under this presidency, it's not, going to get, it's not going to get any easier or any better, at least not in my opinion. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. Before we get into our next, I'll give you the next name and we'll get into it when we come back from break. Next name's R. Kelly. And let's throw, let's throw something else on that as well. That's Black History Month. Right. Last, last couple of days, well, last few days. But we'll get into this when we come back. So don't go anywhere. This is Radio Islam. We're on WCEV 1450 AM. We'll be back in a minute. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Sweet strawberry icing. You're in goodwill and just past that vintage denim jacket you spot. Miniature donut earrings. You lean in. Ah, oh, that's the scent of shopping success. Because at Goodwill, every item you buy funds local job training and more. So bring home those donut earrings and bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. Excuse me. I know you have a 9 o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me, get granular, keep me in the pipeline. But nada, nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me, and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So, I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume, and I absolutely crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. 
Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. Uh, last but not least, stop by RadioIslam.com. You can see uh, guest bios and info and, and just stay up to date with the Radio Islam family. So that's RadioIslam.com. All right, I am here with the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. Assalamualaikum. Well, like and uh, before we went to break, we said that we would get into, uh, we dropped two names, well, one name and a, I guess you can call it an institution, right? We're talking about a month. Uh, and that is R. Kelly, who said Black History Month, right? How do these two things work out? Let's see. Let's see if it works mm. out for us. <laughs> so R. Kelly was due back in court today. And uh, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, uh, she provided details about the accusers, which included Kelly's, at the time, 24-year-old 24, 24 hair, 24-year-old hair, hairdresser, uh, and two 16-year-olds, and uh, one person was 14-year-olds at the time of the first alleged incident. So what is going on, some of these things go back to 1998, but what's really interesting about all of this, because R. Kelly is not new to these allegations, uh, there's been a big cloud surrounding him, I mean, for a long, long time. And if you're from Chicago, especially if you're from uh, the South Side, um, the Kenwood, High Park area, you have heard, you, you're probably very familiar with some of those stories. Now, what is really, really interesting here is that someone who has sold the amount of records that he has in his career. He's one of the highest selling artists, I mean, in the history of the music industry. Was given a million dollar, uh, a million dollar bond, but was unable to come up with the 10% for bail. So he spent the weekend in jail. The 10%, $100,000. That really surprised me when I first heard that it was a million dollars, I said, oh, 10% of that, that's nothing for him. You know, that's, that's jump change for someone like R. Kelly with uh, dozens of hit songs and should be worth millions, if not like $100 million. Yeah, yes, yeah. hundreds of millions, right? Uh, you, you would definitely assume that. And turns out, though, yeah. he has very little <laughs> money left. That ain't the case. Uh, he released a song called uh, I Did It. And it was, you know, straight on uh, on YouTube. It was, you know, social media. And in that, <clears throat> excuse me, this came out, I think, right after there was a BET documentary that included quite a few of the, uh, quite a few women who alleged sexual assault um, mm -hmm. by R. Kelly. And he, he released this single and he, he talked about I did it, but he, he basically was saying that, uh, number one, he was broke, um, but then also that he had 23 lawyers. Um, he mentioned that he was basically a functioning uh, illiterate, right? And that yeah. because of that, he didn't own 
the rights to his his publishing. He didn't own his masters. He didn't basically with all the record sales that he had, he was not benefiting from that. And he said he said some other stuff as well. But I think these are some interesting points. I'm, I'm not not so much. I don't want to so much focus on what everybody else is talking about in terms of uh, the guilt the and the abuse. history and yeah. abuse and all that. Right. And I think those things are going to be dealt with. And I I applaud. Uh, State's Attorney uh, Kim Fox for mm -hmm. picking this up and making sure that justice is being done. I mean, justice delayed is better than no justice uh, at all. What I want to talk about is, especially as we are into these last few days of Black History Month, is this recur reoccurring theme of black creativity and contribution that has been exploited and this, um, it's like the same movie you see, where you've had these artists who've produced hits, who performed, but they die penniless, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't own their publishing. They didn't own their masters. When folks redid their, um, they did remixes or, or you know, covers of their songs, the record label got paid. But the artist did not. Right, right. Uh, and we can go back, we can look at uh, like Led Zeppelin with, um, who is it, Muddy Waters. I think there was a big song that, that he did. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they redid a song and, and they wind up with an out of court settlement. Or uh, The Beatles with Chuck Berry. Hmm. Um, um, or Elvis with, uh, what's this fella's name, Willie Clayton or something like that. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was just kind of a, just a, it was on a reel, right? The same thing over and over again. These people didn't own their publishing. They didn't own uh, the rights to their music, and and they you know they had some fame for a minute, but you know fame doesn't necessarily feed you. Yeah, right. A lot of people in the rap industry uh, make the same complaint that of people. Huge entering into the rap industry with um, very little knowledge of how the music industry works mm -hmm. and getting stuck with all the bills. They, they get an advance, for example. Right. See, a $50,000, $100,000 advance, even a million dollars, not understanding that they have to use that money to create their whole album or even multiple albums. Yeah. And so they get this money for, you know, young kid fresh off the streets, and they think that, oh, they made it, and they start buying cars and this and that, jewelry. jewelry. Yeah. Um, so I think nowadays, now, um, in retrospect, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but now you're starting to see rappers advocating for financial literacy. Yeah. Right? I heard some famous rappers even from Chicago talk about this. They want, they said they, w they wish they could go back to their youth and learn just financial literacy. Yeah. Yeah, because it's a business. Yeah. Yeah, it's a business. It's a business and it's set up to leech off of the artist, not to make the artist rich, you know? Yeah. But when the artist sees that glitz and that glamour, they, they get the impression that this is all about me, you know? I'm going to be benefiting from this, but not really the yeah. case. Hey, you know what? This, this probably, I think, lends itself to a... Uh, maybe a, a deeper conversation on the structure or the foundation of uh, of American wealth, mm -hmm. and, and and what I mean by that is 
much of America's wealth today, or the position that America holds, it goes back to um, using its enslaved Africans as collateral for loans that were given, that allowed it to expand, that allowed it to uh, buy more land, buy more equipment, that that really it undergirded its uh, economic, uh, that uh, economic explosion. So that's kind of kind of what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Well, let, let me say this think, real quick. Hold yeah, on, go ahead. So let me say this. So what, what I mean, this extends to there's a culture of exploitation of of African uh, labor and creativity, uh, and there's a history of that that also presented itself especially early on and, and continues to now um, in, the, in the record, you know, in the record industry and entertainment. Uh, it's still that very same cycle of exploitation. So what, was, what were you going to say? No, you basically touched on what I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask you, do you think, do you feel like this, um, this, this phenomena that we see in the record industry of young artists not getting paid for their work, not getting paid properly, not being told properly how to get paid. Do you see that as an extension of um, the Jim Crow era or even something earlier than that in which uh, black artists or African-Americans who are doing some form of work, in, in this case specifically black artists, are being deliberately exploited? Uh, do I see that as, as an extension of, of the Jim Crow era? Yeah. Um, or at least do you see it as a deliberate exploitation of, of black artists? Yeah, and you know what? And I would also like to, even though it's Black History Month, I still want to recognize that there have been plenty of um, of, of white artists also, yeah. especially, you know, that were uneducated, that, that, you know, who had literacy rates that were similar. You know, well, with poverty and illiteracy, those kind of, those, yeah. they go together, right? Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of artists in that fit that box that also were exploited, right? But it's a different, um, th there's a different history with that because it's not embedded in in, in, in in slavery, right? So the continuation of it, this seems to be more of a an isolated incident. You ran across the wrong guy and he got you as opposed to a systemic issue that fosters exploitation. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, uh, it is, it's a continuation of the system uh, because that's that is uh, that's the design of it. That's how it's been um, framed, and that's how 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 it's functioned. You get people who can create and who can produce, and then you have those others who are there to siphon off the benefits of that. Yeah, um, I guess it's important to point out for our listeners: we're not here to like defend R. Kelly or to feel sorry for him, like you said in the beginning. Oh, no. In Chicago, it's kind of a, in the entire Chicago area, it's kind of like a unkept secret that R. Kelly has always been involved in some some of these nefarious uh, activities, especially when it comes to like underage girls. It's a very open secret yeah. uh, in the Chicago area. So we're not here to like feel sorry for R. Kelly or whatever. But the fact that he couldn't, he, he has all these mega hits Right, and these iconic songs. I believe I can fly. World's I believe greatest. I can fly. One of the most iconic songs ever made. Period. Really, yeah. and that he has no money to show for that. That touches off uh, this important tangent, I think, of what's happening within the music industry and how artists 
are treated and how artists are valued. Yeah. Yeah. Are they, are they artists. commodities? Are they commodities or are they invent? I shouldn't say commodity. Yeah. Are they commodities? Right. Is it just uh, something for you to extract, you know, <laughs> all the resources out of it? And then when it's done, you move on to the next. Mm-hmm. Or are you actually investing in a human being? Uh, and that's a complete those are two different ways of looking at you know at artists and historically it's been uh, uh, the former you know yeah. we're gonna get what we can out of you and send you on your way I haven't been keeping up with the music industry in the recent years mm-hmm. do you think the move towards streaming and more of uh, an artist's ability to independently make a name for themselves do you think that's that's starting to change this this formula a little bit oh absolutely absolutely um, um, social media platforms uh, YouTube has been a game changer Spotify um, yeah the, these platforms have allowed for artists to be able to promote themselves um, really take advantage of, of of crafting their own brand uh, and you got and well as far as content goes, that's another issue, right? Because it's a lot of there are a lot of people who have been able to uh, create a buzz. Eh, they're not really saying anything, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's no real social commentary. But once again, as a as an older person, uh, <laughs> you know, I recognize that my tastes are not are not necessarily the taste of the 19 and and 20 year old, yeah. right? But you think about a guy like a Takashi six nine or all of the littles, little pumps, little Uzi, mm-hmm. little you know, um, you know, and you just kind of go down and down the list. They've all been able to do what they've done, not necessarily with uh, a major label, you know. And Jay Jay Z is probably the most the most famous one to keep reminding folks that he did it without a pen, did it without signing to a major label, did mm-hmm. it very much under his, under his own terms. Um, so I think. Wait, Jay Z said that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "Don't forget, I did, I did it with all, with, without a pen." When he says that line about "I did it without a pen," that's exactly what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't sign on a line to be, even though he tried to get on, yeah. right? Because I remember when I remember from Jay Z is like back in the '90s where he was on, uh, he's on Def Jam, mm-hmm. and there was a dispute with him. I guess yeah, him, partnership. him. Him and Dame Dash got into some kind of dispute, yeah. and then Dame Dash blames uh, Leor Cohen, Cohen yeah. and Def Jam for it. And this was a whole kind of thing. But after that, I guess Jay Z went off and kind of tried to do his own thing. <coughs> Jay Z, so the partnership that he had with uh, Def Jam, you know, he had Rock, uh, Rock Nation, the, the, that was his thing. Yeah. Um, and he had artists signed and. Um, yeah, and it fell apart, whatever. But he continued. Like, now he owns Tidal, right? Mm-hmm. Streaming service. Um, and is close to a, a billion, if not over, you know, a uh, net worth of over a billion dollars now. So he's done some things that haven't been seen or maybe would have been seen. I'm going to give you a little bit of plug real quick because I don't know how long it's going to be on there. And hopefully it'll stay on for the remainder of the year or whatever. I don't know how long they got a license, but on Netflix, they've got a really good cache of uh, black history documentaries. And one of them is with, uh, it's about Sam Cooke. 
Um, and he was, probably would have been the Jay-Z of his era or the mm. Barry Gordy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, before Barry Gordy. Phenomenal visionary as far as business was concerned, taking back uh, publishing, owning the masters, giving artists the platform, uh, you know, revenue sharing, just, just, you know, but he was, he was killed before he could bring his vision to uh, fruition. So, um, anyway, go check that out and check out Kevin Hart's black history. It's another really good one. Uh, kind of demonstrates this, this, uh, recurring theme of, uh, exploitation, but going back to the music, financial literacy that caught my ear. So to hear artists talking about the importance of financial history, rappers in particular, uh, I think that's I think that's really important, right? Because they've started to recognize that if you're going to be in a partnership with a major label, you got to ask yourself the question: What am what am I actually getting, other than an advance, mm -hmm. right? What's the what's what am I actually looking for from them? And then, can I do it myself? Do I really need them? And I think that's the position that a lot of the record labels are in right now. Are they really necessary? You know, because you see guys doing it without them. And I think that financial literacy, actually, that desire for financial literacy extends outside of even the music industry into just, uh, you know, the average kid growing up in Chicago on the south side or the west side generally should know, should be literate financially and know, you know, how things work, how the financial system or how does banks work, yeah. right? How does real estate work? Mm -hmm. uh, they should be given this information. Yeah. And you think about a guy like, like R. Kelly, um, who is probably, you know, emblematic of, of, of thousands of other artists. Of course, very few make it to that point that, you know, that he has as far as, you know, mm -hmm. artistry, artistry is concerned. But when it comes to financial literacy, getting large sums of money for the first time in your life and not understanding a budget, not understanding an asset as opposed to a liability, Right. And maybe not even understanding when the next check is going to come. Um, it's kind of it's, it's kind of a, a um, perfect conditions for a disaster. Yeah. You know, so I think that's something that probably needs to go back into the to really be a part of if it's not already. Right. Because I'm not an educator, so I don't know if it's a part of the curriculum in, in grammar schools or not. But that's something that children need to need to learn from day one the person specifically i heard saying this it yeah. was on an interview on, i saw on youtube um a very talented rapper bumpy johnson from chicago bump j okay yeah um he had he had his run with the law he was he was poised to be in like the early to mid 2000s the next big thing i mean he was just a brilliant uh lyricist brilliant mc and then he got caught up in got caught up with the wrong crowd he was with the wrong crowd he's a gangster rapper still yeah but um this is what he said about financial literacy he said if somebody were to have taught me that when i was little maybe i wouldn't have ever got into this this wrong side of the of the streets you know this wrong side of them because i didn't i we just didn't know right we thought it was all about the big guns big cars big money you know big mm -hmm. jewelry that's what it was yeah. if we had no financial literacy like look this is what you're gonna get out of this deal or this real estate deal or whatever, maybe we never uh, got into that. You know what's funny about that is that when I mentioned 
what my appetite is, right? Because I grew up on the hip hop, you know, and I still listen, uh, certainly with a lot more discernment uh, and sometimes with a lot of displeasure, depending on what I'm hearing, right? Because I, I, I try to see what the younger generation is, is listening to, how they're being influenced. Um, but when I talk about that social commentary, and not just social commentary, but life lessons, Jay-Z is, is one, of my, one of my top five mm -hmm. MCs, right? And not just for flows and all of that, but he's one of my top MCs because he infuses his music with lessons for those who are willing to listen. Right, so he one of his lines on four four four, it was um, I'm trying to give you a million dollars worth of game for nine ninety nine, hmm. right? And he goes through this financial literate not, not financial literacy, but just financial awareness. Um, you know, he's talking about real estate. He's like, I could have bought this place in Dumbo, I guess this neighborhood in New York, upscale or whatever. He says I could have bought this place in Dumbo for two million and 10 years later it's worth 25 million mm. say so i passed on it right talking about yeah. the value of real estate it's like you know so how do i feel like a dumbo right <laughs> and he talks about art and you know this year's worth one million next year's worth two million and in a couple more years it's going to be worth four million and and so on he says and i can't wait to give this to my children he's, he's speaking about he's speaking about legacy Right, not just not just right now, and of course, every everybody's not going to be able to buy buy art, but it pushes you to think generationally, right? Because the wealth gap the the wealth gap that exists in the country between white America, Black America, that has has continued to expand. A lot of it is structural, a lot of it is systemic, but it's also a matter of thinking two, three generations down the line. And when you are focused on immediacy and just, you know, I'm just trying to shine, you know, so you spend all your money just on what makes you look good instead of preparing the generations to come, wealth never happens. So he's he's one of those MCs, and, and he's done He didn't just start doing it. He's been doing that for a long time. Yeah. You know, he says, uh, what do you say? Change, something's important, but more important is lawyer fees. Right, he's still he's talking to guys. That's, if you're out there in that life, you haven't made the transition yet. You gotta have lawyer fees, you know. <laughs> so yeah, um, I'm up here musing about Jay because th th those are some of the things that I appreciate. Give something back in the music, mm -hmm. you know. Give something back. So anyway, um, before we close out, I want to mention. This kind of goes to somebody you talked about. Uh, Lyar Cohen, right, was with, um, uh, he's a former music uh, CEO, and Lupe Fiasco mm -hmm. has, a, has a beef with him, or had a beef with him, right, and he's also one of the most talented uh, MCs, you know, out there, period, but he came under fire from the Anti-Defamation League because he had a lyric, um, I'm not gonna repeat, repeat the lyric, but it was something. It 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 had it it raised the ire of the um, uh, ADJ, and they responded, you know, in kind that you know we don't want any anti-Semitic uh, 
tropes because he he made a general statement about uh, Jewish people, and then he came back and said, no, 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 I'm specifically talking about um, Laia Cohen, mm-hmm. who tried to cross me on my contract, and you know, I only mentioned him because he also has a reputation. We got to be careful about speaking about things we don't really know per- firsthand, but. I've seen it in a public space where people have mentioned him as a disruptive force for, you know, in, in, in music or whatever. I remember Most Def did a, a song that was mentioning that too. Really? A long time ago. He did actually a remake of uh, a Jay Z song. Jay Z song, I think the Jay Z song was called The Takeover or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So most Def did a, a like a remake of that right after that came out. You know how it is. Yeah. Um, and then he has a couple lines in that where he says Seagrams is running this rap thing, really? and he said a tall Israeli is running this rap game, and he's talking I about Leroy Cohen. Yeah. So he came under fire for that too, back, way back then. Yeah. And this is you know this is a really long time ago because I actually remember it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you know what's really interesting about that. Is when, when does telling the truth or your truth, right, sharing your actual experience, what you've been through, and talking about the people that have wronged you, when does that become an indictment upon a whole people? When does that become anti-Semitism? How does that become anti-Semitism or anti or anti-white or anti-black? How does that happen? Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes it's. Uh it's a matter of people wanting to silence you and taking advantage of certain statements that you've made, of certain cracks in your statements that they can exploit and try to make you look like something that you're actually not. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned this very briefly, uh, Ilhan Omar, how she talked about APAC. Yeah. Basically, she said APEC exists, yeah. <laughs> and they're giving and they're giving political contributions, mm-hmm. right? They're lining the coffers of of elected officials, and those elected officials are acting and speaking on behalf of APEC, right? Or at least to advance their goals, right? How is that anti-Semitic? Mm-hmm. Y'all, you, y'all let me know. Let me know. If, if you know how that is, break that down to me, right? Because, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I haven't figured it out. I'm going to go with your explanation. It's just a, me- it's, it's a method of silencing people, right? Um, but staying with Black History Month, I want to close out on this. <clears throat> if there's anything that we as Americans should have should have learned i think in our awareness of the i think the cancer i'll call it exactly what it is any can any ideology that puts one individual over another or debases and marginalizes uh, a group of people that's something to be rejected period right full stop period so whether it's white supremacy, whether it is anti-Semitism, whether it is Islamophobia, whether it is anti-blackness, whether it is anti, um, uh, an anti-immigrant period, whatever it is, 
that's something to be rejected. But if we can take any lesson from how the country has been sensitized to anti-Semitism, it is this. There's been a very deliberate, very deliberate and thoughtful process of education and advocacy on behalf of our Jewish brothers and sisters towards the larger um, population. Because remember, the Muslims make up about a percent of the population. Our Jewish brothers and sisters, they make up 2%. That's not a lot, right? But there have been great efforts to sensitize the American people, beginning with education, secondary, primary education, so that they know, the students know the history of the uh, Jewish Holocaust. They know the trials, uh, the oppression that Jewish immigrants have faced here in the United States of America. They know the animus that they have, uh, that they've been, been victim of. And as such, that's a shared pain, that's a shared realization that we don't want to see take place again. And accordingly, there are private organizations like the ADJ that ADL. step up, anti, uh, I'm sorry, AD, uh, ADL. There are organizations like the ADL that step up, Anti-Defamation League, that step up and call out folks when they start spewing uh, hatred because words become actions, right? Hitler was just running off at the mouth for a long time before, um, before you know, this, this, this horror of a, a genocide and ethnic cleansing and all of that took place. So words have consequences and you got to step up against them. So what does this have to do with black history? As a country that is so profoundly aware of its own uh, color differences because of the history of enslavement, because it has not been reconciled, that pain and that, that hurt has not been reconciled. There was no 40 acres. There was no mule. Um, and we have just been left with the frustration because our educational system, it does not do what was done for our Jewish brothers and sisters. It does not convey the pain, not just the individual achievements, which is nice, right? You wanna hear about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, you wanna hear about Dr. George Washington Carver, Ida B. Wells, and all these other luminaries. But when we don't hear about the pain, we don't hear about Tulsa, Oklahoma, we don't hear about Elaine, Arkansas, Rosewood, or Cairo, Illinois, Right, right here in Illinois, Cairo, Illinois, look it up. We don't hear about all these instances of white violence toward black people, massacres, hundreds of people, thousands of people displaced. We don't hear about those things. These are things that how can we expect for future gener generations to be sensitized if we don't openly share those things? And to quote Jay-Z again, real quick, says, how can you heal what you never reveal? Right? How can you heal what you never reveal? So we won't get to the healing when it comes to race relations uh, or the existence of race, right? It's only one human family, but we won't get over this until we reveal what has taken place and deal with it head on. And that's gonna, that means that we have to talk about these things and teach these things in a way that go beyond the exceptionalism that go beyond the achievements of individuals, but really deal with the pain of the whole. 
So if we do that, then we'll come to a point in a couple of generations where that same awareness that we have when somebody says anti-Semitism and ears perk up and you look around and you, you examine, we'll get to that same point as it relates to all of these other expressions of hate. And particularly, I'm gonna lead off with, as I'm saying, Black History Month, the one of the oldest hates that we've dealt with that our country's been built on, anti-blackness. So leave that for you to ponder, to think on. Uh, and possibly we might have some deeper discussion on that at some other point. But all right, family. Uh, Want to get a salam before, as we go out? Salam alaikum. All right. Like my salam. All right, fam. We thank you all for joining us. Uh, we thank our engineers over at WCEV, and we thank that train operator that you're in the background. That's right. We're right next to the elevated train uh, downtown. I'm your host, Tariq Elamine. Uh, Ibrahim and I are your producers. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.